The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I'm now joined for The Bigger Picture by Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, um, if we have time, we've got three topics we're going to get through. What are we going to begin with? Um, We'd like to start uh, with the issue of road pricing. Um, uh, Of course, when I was young, we talked about the roads of Britain as being the Queen's Highway. But and, and yes. that, that sort of denotes the idea that somehow they belong uh, to the head of state or, or particularly mm. state. And then we tend to think, of course, of um, we think of the Department of Transport um, and we think of the developments of the A roads um, at the end of the 18th and early 19th, sorry, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, and then all the building of the motorways mm. in the 50s and 60s and, and beyond. And, and we sort of think that, yes, roads are um, a, a timeless public good in that many of them are not excludable. You know, if you want to go on a road, you want to go on a road and they're not rivalrous. Um, what's the point of putting, you know, a motorway next to an A road next to another one? Um, it, it doesn't quite make sense. So economists often think of uh, roads as, as, as being public goods and they think of them as um being something that politics is heavily involved in what's really interesting about all this is as a great economist in fact he won a nobel prize ronald coase made clear an awful lot of public goods uh, classically lighthouses and, and indeed roads have not always been run politically or from taxation um, for example in georgian england we have more than thirty thousand miles of private uh, toll roads uh, they were usually held by local communities and they were called turnpike trusts. What's really interesting is now um, the government uh, uh, are clearly facing a problem with roads because as they move from uh, the uh, carbon economy and the economy um, of very much uh, petrol uh, to, uh, to more electronic electric vehicles, and they have stringent environmental targets to reach from really 2030 onwards, um, the government could lose something in the order of £30 billion a year in terms of revenue from things like fuel duty. And so the government um, seems to be coming out with all kinds of ideas, um, usually uh, ideas hooked onto this rubric of the environment. But there was a brilliant article by Robert Taylor recently in The Telegraph, and it's a very simple sort of headline. Um, if road pricing is coming, the government should ditch its cowardice and tell us. And and I have to say, I, I, I kind of agree with that. At the moment, there's, you know, in London, there's a low emissions charge, there's the road charge, we pay fuel duty, there's a tax you pay on the car you pay at the petrol pump there are all these there are all these various taxes um if in fact we are moving to uh to, to back to an almost georgian age of paying per mile and the actual use of 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 road space then please tell us because what's actually going on is an awful lot of confusion lots of different taxes lots of very little joined up thinking actually um, taxes 
can be levied by you know local councils you see various municipalities getting involved in various ways in in road pricing we have it under of course the car the mayor of london there are other areas like manchester in the northwest and birmingham uh, and i hear on the grapevine in the south portsmouth is interested maybe in introducing a road pricing scheme at some point but but I think that if this is where we're going, if we're in a sense going back to the future and some sort of national road pricing scheme, um, then really this should be brought out into the open and we should debate it. Well, I suppose the only well-known toll road in the UK, I know there are some anom anomalous toll roads. I think there's one in Dulwich, I seem to remember if it's still there. But I, used to, I, I used to go sometimes just for the pleasure of playing a toll. Um, but there's the M6 road toll, where at least you get the choice between getting there a bit faster if you pay or just going on the conventional m6 if you don't but we're not talking about that at all are we were talking about having to pay basically for driving anywhere yeah i mean first of all you're right the, the m6 toll road which was built i suspect uh, about 30 or 40 years ago was at the time touted as sort of a beacon of uh of of a new road pricing scheme hmm. and uh and I've used the M6 toll road on numerous occasions. Uh, I'm told by a former roads minister, um, who I won't name, uh, that what was impressive about the M6 road uh, is that it's not just you know, a really super duper road service, uh, because I think if you're paying, I don't know, 10 or 12 pounds or whatever it is, and you're going from A to B and you're paying for it, they have a really super duper road service. So for example, um, the rain goes through the surface really well. It's a permeable surface and um, it makes it safer. If you break down, um, the road has its own private uh, highway patrol. And if you, for example, ran out of petrol, they'll come and fill you up. Um, and also um, the lighting uh, is different. As you go onto it at one end and go off it at the other end, there's sort of lighting that adjusts your eyes to the national motorway system at either end. So it, it's a really interesting phrase. But of course, it's not the only uh, private road in the sense of Britain. You mentioned the one near Dulwich College. Um, there, you know, there, there are priced bridges, the Dartford Crossing, for example. There are, there are various bridges dotted around the country. Of course, you pay. Um, um uh i believe if you cross the tamar i think going to cornwall you certainly pay when you come out of wales um so road pricing has never fully gone away but but we've lived in a, a sort of um uh, 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 in in, a, in a neither one or the other whereas countries like france have a national coherent road toll system and you you know it's sort of clearly marked if you look at French maps, you know, if you go onto this road, mm. it's priced. And if you go onto that road, it might take you longer, but but it's sort of paid for by the taxpayer. And we seem to be doing this in a very British, incremental, slightly anarchic um, way. And I just wonder if uh, there is not an opportunity here for someone in Parliament, particularly the opposition, to actually uh, try and build some shape and coherence into this policy. Because otherwise, let's be clear, um, politicians are going to use phrases like build back better, and they're going to talk about the environment and they're going to talk about the introduction of electric cars, but they're simply going to also want to smuggle in these charges on the QT, on the quiet as much as they can. Um, and the danger there 
is that if you find you're char being charged for the odd bit of a road or motorway, but then you're being charged to go into various cities or even towns in the future, then you can have all manner of duplication, different charges, different systems, and all kinds of complification, which can, I think, in time become questionable um, from a legal point of view, because uh, um, you know, if you're being charged to go on a motorway, but then to get off it, you find you're entering a town or a city where you're charged again, and you weren't pre-warned, it's that lack of joined up thinking that can almost give the impression of a rip-off Britain. Yes, well, well, yes, going into London feels like that, trying to avoid the congestion charge area is pretty difficult, I find. Um, the article you refer by uh, Robert Taylor, though, talks about a sort of conflict at the heart of this, that the government is trying to get us to drive less, um, you know, to use other forms of transport, public transport, walk or even um, cycle. But at the same time, it is it needs us to carry on driving because it needs the, the, the revenue. He says it's like trying to run backwards and forwards at the same time. Indeed, of course. Um, first of all, let's not forget road pricing is something that has been pushed uh, by the free market think tanks for a long time. Not only have the Adam Smith Institute done a fair bit of work in the UK in this area since the early 1990s, uh, so formally another group, the Libertarian Alliance, did a lot of work on this. There was a, an intellectual called Brian Micklethwaite who did a lot of work on the privatisation mm. of public space. But going right back to the 1960s, uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs has been promoting um, the idea of, of road pricing. Lots of those people, lots of those ideologues see it as a gateway to uh, private ownership of roads and better services, better lighting, more safety, uh, more innovation, more creativity, more beauty sometimes in roads. Mm. Um, the problem, though, is um, uh, uh, that, that oh, yes, and you're right, and, and the Telegraph is very good on this, you know, the government policy seems confused. Of course, what happens when... A po when politicians of any stripe uh, impose a tax, whether it's fuel duty or the congestion charge in London, um, or, or indeed if it's, if it's a road pricing scheme, is um, those politicians tend to become habituated to the income. They use that income to tout all manner of policies that they put in their manifestos to win favor from voters. And so, actually, if you want the car, you know, whether it's uh, petrol or whether it's electric, if you want it to have, uh, a, if you want, if you believe in the motor car or the electric vehicle as some sort of um, uh, element of sort of a free society now, then the surest way to get politicians to um, keep on side with these vehicles um, is to allow the politicians to tax them in some way, even if it, that's road pricing, because the politicians, the political class, will become habituated to their income. Um, uh, don't think for a second uh, that the introduction of road pricing in the long term will mean less vehicles. It won't. Um, yeah. Sadiq Khan, you know, can push the price up for the congestion charge so much, but when less money is being generated, um, uh, he or any other mayor will not like it. Yes, talking of temporary taxes, of course, I mean, we should refer to that as most uh, iniquitous of temporary taxes, the income tax. 
which we were told was not going to last long. Well, no, I wasn't told I wasn't around then, but I mean, that's another one, you know, publishers yes, discover they just like the money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and it's not just them. It is because politicians uh, in a democracy, um, uh, you know, respond to voters and will tout their wares to voters. And uh, rather like business people who are motivated by profit, um, politicians in a democracy, you know, are uh, greedy and rapacious vote motivated creatures. And so long as we keep voting, uh, for these various things, baubles, health systems, education, defence, lighthouses, roads, whatever we entrust to the public sector, they will go on taxing and um, and arguing that they have the best means to run these things. Hmm. Um, so, but look, for me, the really big picture here is that I think we all sense uh, that road pricing is coming uh, it seems very messy at the moment, and it would be really good if we had a government of any stripe in the future that could just admit um, that incrementally that is where they're moving us to. That in a sense, um, probably the latter half of the 21st century will involve a lot more road pricing. And in that way, the historian in me will suggest to listeners and to students and to friends, uh, it is going to be in some way an echo, perhaps, of the Turnpike Trust era, particularly of mm. the Georgian period. Mm. But perhaps without the danger of high women, at least one hopes not. Um, Tim, possibly time for us to change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what, pray, is our second subject for today? Um, really interesting uh, piece by uh, Peter Apps, uh, who is Reuters' uh, worldwide or global correspondent. Um, and it was headed as US leaves Afghanistan new regional great game looms um of course the great game is that wonderful phrase used at the end of the 19th century to describe um the the, the sort of the european powers um vying over uh parts of the middle east uh and and indeed the caucasus and um and, and countries like afghanistan and um and what used to be uh, northwest india and, and what we see today is we see uh, that for all the efforts of the US and their allies in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban uh, seem to be uh, capturing uh, ever more terrain in that country. Um, uh, the vast majority of US forces have left. Um, uh, Turkey um, is supposedly uh, in Afghanistan to defend the airport in Kabul, in Kabul, the capital, and there are still US forces defending US embassy in Kabul. Um, there are quite a few naval and air forces in the region, but at a more strategic level, what you see is huge Russian influence in uh, Syria, um, uh, right out to Libya, um, and the Russians obviously have an interest in um, 
in uh, well in some aspects of Iraq and and um, uh, uh, also in uh, I mean arguably um, and we've discussed this before peculiar sort of uh, relations in with some of the areas within the United Arab Emirates uh, you have uh, America um, uh, that seems to have uh, a, a very difficult to define foreign policy at the moment. Um, and, and you have Britain, very good ally of countries like Qatar and, and Oman. Um, but you also have China, uh, China getting you know ever more involved in the region. Uh, the Chinese have a particularly close relationship with Pakistan. The Chinese have ambitions of trade through their um, uh, belt and uh, roadway, their sort of desire to recreate the Silk, uh, Silk Road of, of ancient times. And, um, and the other thing that Russia is doing, and I think this is really interesting, is that Russia is, again, you know, a, a really big player in, in Central Asia. Um, and and in, in Tajikistan uh, is moving ever closer uh, to Moscow in its diplomatic and military uh, relations. Um, and whereas in recent years, we've often thought of China and Russia as sort of being great allies, um, as people line up um, with sort of the vacuum created by the US, well, Russia seems to be heavily involved with Tajikistan. China, as I said, with Pakistan. What the American position is, we don't know. How fast the Taliban will move forward is, is again, uh, a question mark. And will they capture Kabul in its entirety? Will the Turks be able to maintain the runway there? Who knows? And, and really, the big question of all is, where are we going? I, I think this is almost one of those moments, like the latter decades of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th, where, where, you know, the shape isn't yet clear for the great game in that area. Um, but one does get the sense, Simon, that, that there is a, a turning of the wheel and that there is a great game for influence in that part of the world for this century. And, and it's just beginning again. I can see that if the Americans were pulling out, that we were going to have to um, reduce our presence as as well, do you, do you feel it was a it was a mistake to leave, and that it was somehow mean that the last couple of decades or so were to some extent completely wasted? Well, I'm not an expert in this area, and I'm going to make um uh, 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 forgive me for making um a, 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 a rather peculiar remark, but when I was a little boy, um in the late sixties and nineteen seventies, um. Um, and before I had heard the phrase uh, great game or, you know, understood Radio Kipling or any of these things or, or the yes. geopolitics. But when I was tiny, you know, there were obviously those wonderful carry on films, uh, those great comedies on television. And one of them, of course, was Carry On Up the Khyber, which yes. was actually poking fun at, uh, at the British um, and the British military sort of in, you know, in the, in the northwest frontier. The Khyber Pass, India, Afghanistan, that region, and 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 and, and the absurdity of British regiments uh, there was sort of brought home in a rather comedic fashion. But the older I got, and sort of after nine eleven, um, um, 
it was with a degree of horror that this stopped being a comedy where we were making fun of ourselves. And it seemed to become some kind of rather odd and half-baked foreign policy. Now, I understand uh, the global threat of terrorism, and I well understand um, the, the threat posed by extreme ideologies um, and extremists. Um, but the history books tell me that you know it, it was very difficult for the British in Afghanistan in the mid 19th century. Um, when I again, when I was a, a young man, um, it seemed to me that Afghanistan for the Soviet Union almost became their Vietnam. And I think the greater question is uh, not about you know what can we as great military powers do in those countries. But how can those countries be economically developed? And also, um, what, uh, what is going on more in the arena of the battle of ideas as opposed to the, to the battle of bombs and bullets? And it always struck me, it, following 9-11, um, that, that the West spent an awful lot of money on aircraft and bombs and guns and boots on the ground but we were not doing a lot in terms of the battle of ideas um and and, and to me that's what the causal root of it so you know what is it that the taliban actually believes um how are they themselves factionalized i'm not convinced they are a unified and amorphous mass um you know what different you know, philosophical or, or ideological cleavages do they have? Um, where may bridges be built and where, where are the real threats? And I'm not confident that we did an, a, a, you know, a proper audit on that. Um, we used, it seems to me, an awful lot of ham-fisted techniques, you know, um, uh, you know, destroying poppy fields, but not really understanding um, the implications for that in terms of local economy and well-being and 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 what could make the economy thrive you know what what will help to take uh, these belief systems and um the ideological views that various people hold what will take them into a more you know, reasonable and accommodating mindset. It seems to me that we've, we've sort of abrogated the entire space here. I'm not confident, you know, Russia or China or whoever gets involved. It, it, it seems to me that, that, that they, they all do this with bombs, guns and bullets, but they're avoiding the big question of, of hearts and minds. Um, and I, I just wish we had more of a debate, I guess, um, about that as opposed to the simplistic world of of nation national interests um and really outsiders um vying for power in in a regional contest thank you let's uh, turn our attention to our third topic sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with the Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University, Tim Evans. So, Tim, what's our, our final topic? Our final topic is the mounting unrest in Cuba. Um, uh, the Cuban Revolution, um, 
was of course inspired by Fidel Castro and his brother Raul. Um, we now know enough about the Cuban revolution all those decades ago to really know that Raul Castro was the ideological brain behind it. He was very much an ally of the Soviet Union and he was a very hardline um, Marxist-Leninist of, of you know, uh, an ally of Moscow Center, if you will. Um, Fidel was uh, less ideologically committed in the early years, a very flamboyant character, uh, someone very much born for a sort of charismatic media age. But they uh, put in place their uh, socialist revolution. It was initially heavily supported by the Soviet Union. Um, many things have been nationalized. Um, for a long time, they propagandized about the quality of their health system. But um, as happens with an awful lot of uh, hardline socialist or, or communist regimes, the economy flags, they've tried to bolster the economy in recent years with a little bit more private enterprise. Uh, they've tried to allow a little bit more freedom vis-a-vis -vis, uh, social media. Um, and of course, the regime has also tried to keep going with things, sectors like tourism, a lot of Brits, a lot of Americans, a lot of outsiders, you know, do find their way into Cuba for holidays. But it's a very, very sad and sorry state of affairs. Huge number of Cuban women are involved in prostitution and numbers are really very, very high. Um, and the economy uh, has been flagging. The government has not done well with COVID. Um, the levels of underinvestment in Cuba on, on the capital side, really for the last 50, 60 years have been mind blowing. You only have to look at just, you know, ordinary photos of places like Havana to see that now um, it's not just the cars uh, that sort of most of which date back to the 1950s, but literally the stoneware, the facades of buildings, balconies are falling off. I mean, the place is crumbling. When I lived in Czechoslovakia in 1991 too, um, uh, yes, you know, the infrastructure was crumbling there in a very round, a very profound and, and, and real way. Um, but when you look at Cuba, I mean, buildings are literally collapsing and the economy is in such a sorry state now that, um, that people are going hungry. So Cuba seems to be at an inflection point. There have been riots recently. People are calling for freedom. Um, and you just get the impression now that whereas many Cubans all those decades ago were excited by their socialist revolution, um, that excitement has gone. Um, I have some friends who were members of the former Czechoslovak Communist Party, and they told me in the last 10 years of communism, they as members of the party no longer believed in socialism, that, that they actually accepted the dynamism and the wealth creating capabilities of, of free markets. And I just wonder if uh, this revolution is is not uh, coming to the end of its course. O only time will tell, Simon. But the authorities um, clearly are not willing to have people protesting in the streets, um, despite the fact they believe in revolution, they don't believe in revolution against themselves. But that's right. And, you know, the authorities will, uh, what they all do in all totalitarian regimes, all authoritarian regimes, they will try, the leadership will try and keep the security forces, the intelligence services, the, the army, the police, you know, the whole paraphernalia of the core state on the side. And you can do that um, when the government has enough wealth 
to be able to keep people on side. But actually what happened across Eastern and Central Europe at communism was that you know, even people doing well uh, under communism, and many of them were members of the party, they knew they could compare their tired old Skoda or larder car, and they knew that it wasn't as good as even the poorer vehicles that we had in the West. And, and I just wonder uh, if the leadership in Cuba um, has the capacity, it has the goods, it has the wealth, uh, the baubles, the carrots, to incentivize loyalty, or will we see various elements of the Cuban state, parts of the apparatus, start to um, come over to the side of the protesters. It's too early to tell. Uh, and maybe, you know, we won't see anything imminently in the weeks or months ahead. But one wonder wonders where Cuba is going. Uh, if I was the regime there, I would be trying to liberalise and open up uh, my market economy to generate wealth mm. uh, as quickly as possible. And of course, I'm, I, I, they won't like it. But a key part of that um, is property rights, uh, both for you know things of the person, goods, services, buildings, capital, land, but also it, it it's concerned with property in the person as as the basic notion of the right of self-ownership is is one of the underpinnings of um, the rule of law and humanitarian protection. Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back again with more in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.